0: Today's reading is Deuteronomy 4, 10 through 43. The day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Assemble the people before me, and I will let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and may instruct their children. You came near and stood at the base of the mountain, a mountain blazing with fire into the heavens and enveloped in a totally black cloud. Then the Lord spoke to you from the fire, You kept hearing the sound of the words, but didn't see a form. There was only a voice. He declared his covenant to you. He commanded you to follow the Ten Commandments, which he wrote on two stone tablets. At that time, the Lord commanded me to teach you statutes and ordinances for you to follow in the land you are about to cross into and possess. Diligently watch yourselves, because you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you out of the fire at Horeb. So you don't act corruptly and make an idol for yourselves in the shape of any figure, a male or female form, or the form of any animal on the earth, any winged creature that flies in the sky, any creature that crawls on the ground, or any fish in the waters under the earth. When you look to the heavens and see the sun, moon, and stars, all the stars in the sky, do not be led astray to bow and worship to them and serve them. The Lord your God has provided them for all people everywhere under heaven, But the Lord selected you and brought you out of Egypt's iron furnace to be a people for his inheritance as you are today. The Lord was angry with me on your account. He swore that I would not cross the Jordan and enter the good land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. I won't be crossing the Jordan because I'm going to die in this land. But you are about to cross over and take possession of the good land. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. And make an idol for yourselves in the shape of anything he has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you have children and grandchildren and have been in the land a long time, and if you act corruptly, make an idol in the form of anything, and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, angering him, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today, that you will quickly perish from the land you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. You will not live long there, but you will certainly be destroyed." The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be reduced to a few survivors among the nations where the Lord your God will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see, hear, eat, or smell. But from there you will search for the Lord your God, and you will find him when you seek him with all your heart and all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, in the future you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. He will not leave you destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them by oath because the Lord your God is a compassionate God. Indeed, ask about the earlier days that preceded you from the day God created mankind on the earth and from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything like this great event ever happened or has anything like it been heard of? Has a people heard God's voice speaking from a fire as you have and lived? Or has a God attempted to go and take a nation as his own out of another nation? by trials, signs, wonders, and war, by a strong hand and an outstretched arm, by great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? You were shown these things (coughs) so that you would know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. He let you hear his voice from heaven to instruct you. He showed you his great fire on earth, and you heard his words from the fire. Because he loved your fathers, he chose their descendants after them. And brought you out of Egypt by his presence and great power to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you and to bring you in and give you their land as an inheritance as is now taking place. Today, recognize and keep in mind that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. Keep his statutes and commands, which I am giving you today so that you and your children after you may prosper and so that you may live long in the land of the Lord your God that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Then Moses set apart three cities across the Jordan to the east. Someone could flee there who committed manslaughter, killing his neighbor accidentally without previously hating him. He could flee to one of these cities and stay alive. Bezer in the wilderness on the plateau land, belonging to the Reubenites, Ramoth and Gilead, belonging to the Gadites, or Golan and Bashan, belonging to the Manassites. Word of the Lord.
1: Now it's on. Everybody needs a pastor's wife. Uh, Kelly has taken the kids for Kids Church, um, uh, but that and so I didn't have a lot to say about that. I would say that at the end of this sermon about idolatry, one of the themes that seems to be coming up ab- uh, throughout the book of Deuteronomy is the way in which these people are going to be a people who restrict violence and so instead of sort of having these endless cycles of sort of, you know, you're able to go after anyone for every reason, they set up cities of refuge for people who kill people on accident um, so that they can go for rather than be caught in sort of this tooth-for-a-tooth uh, tooth sort of world. And it seems like there's, there's this countertext throughout both the Torah about how there's supposed to be justice, but there's also supposed to be restriction to it. So. Uh, that'll be all I say about that this <laughs> morning but if you want to talk more about that um, it, it's an odd way to end the scripture reading so I felt like maybe perhaps I should say something um, a a sermon on uh, idolatry the day after the fourth of July is is a challenge Um The United Methodist Church has this thing where they talk about new clergy and when they get new clergy, the United Methodist Church uh, is a great denomination in the United States and throughout the world, but most of their churches would probably, actually almost all their churches would have American flags up on the front of the sanctuary and so in some areas of the country they have a joke is you get a new pastor, pastors are given by assignment um, and then you see how long it takes them to get the American flag out of the sanctuary and then when they get moved on you start the process all over again. And so for pastors, and I think for me, there's this challenge of how do we acknowledge those things without becoming rote or become something that you blow off or becoming something else. And so one of the things we try to say often at Defiance Church as best as I can is that at Defiance Church, we try not to do Mother's Day or Father's Day or Super Bowl Sunday. Sorry, David. Um, uh, you even like NFL Draft Day. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard for you. Yes. Um, Um, And what I try to mean is that we live our lives according to to the holidays and calendars that we've been given by God. And so that if these things are good news for you, that there are realms in our society, no shortage of them, in which you can celebrate this good news. And yet at church, we come together to celebrate what God has done for us. And so one of the things, before we get too far into the sermon, I thought I would just say that on 4th of July, there's a good chance to remind ourselves that that nation, the love of nation, can become an idolatry as much as anything else. I say that as one who has wept himself to sleep, waiting for baseball season to start again. Um, there's, There's a proper way in which we can love all these things, and then there's an improper way in which they become idolatrous. In the book of Romans, this phrase is taken up in that they worship the created rather than the creator. That we choose to worship the things, the gifts of God that we can manufacture ourselves or that we see that God has made and declared as good to us rather than go to God. And so while I don't think it's a challenge here necessarily, and it's one of the reasons why I I joined this denomination in the first place is because I could be assured when I came to visit uh, Glenwood Mennonite or Defiance Church uh, that there would be no American flag in the sanctuary. Now I will say this is a joke. I think Kara, you've heard it, but that that the charismatics win here because they put up the flags of every tribe, tongue, and nation. So there's there's a there's a whole other level to this in which you can you can honor everyone, um, but to just pick one seems to fall short. But this is our um, it's just a divine providence that it happened that we talk about idolatry this Sunday. This Sunday we're be we're going through the book of Deuteronomy. This is our fifth summer working through the Torah, and so five years ago we did Genesis, uh, then we did Exodus, and then we did Leviticus, and then we did Numbers, and then we did Deuteronomy, and as Hampton's looking at that, that, that scroll, which has the Hebrew titles of each of the first five books, and, and people, they go, oh, it's Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, which I do too, but that's not the Hebrew titles of the book. So those are the Latin titles of the book. Um, the first one is In the Beginning, uh, beginning is the word. The next one is these are the names of the people who went into Egypt. Names. Varikra uh, is the third one, Leviticus. And the Lord spoke to Moses from the temple. Numbers is in the wilderness, which is this story. I think that one is just, if it were named wilderness, I think people would read it more than if it was named numbers. Um, maybe at mathematics schools it does well. Colorado School of Mines. Um, Uh, And then the last one which we are doing this summer is words. These are the words that Moses spoke to the people at the plain. And as we talked about, the book of Deuteronomy is made up of four or three different sermons and sort of a concluding script. And this is the last part of the first sermon. And what they've been living through in the first part is sort of this memory of where they've been and what they're going to do in the rest of it is sort of follow through on this. Now, I would encourage you, Um, I always try to encourage you to read, if we're going through a book of the Bible all the way through, to read all of it through in one sitting. Deuteronomy's, I admit, for many people is a little long for that. Um, And then I think for some people it's a little boring for that, too. Um, So perhaps you could do... uh, 4, 10, 11, 12 in one sitting. I think those make up sort of this core of the book. And then you have the parts that most people know at the end with choose death or choose life, which is one of the thematic things when you look at the book of Deuteronomy is keep in mind the theme of what does it mean to choose death this way day and what does it mean to choose life. As these things are set before us, what does it mean to choose blessing or what does it mean to choose curses? And so this one warns them about how they can end in curses today. As Jamie read for us that they, he calls the people to remember the day they stood before the Lord and congregated them and he spoke to them. Now one of the things that I, that I want to say at the, the start here that we've talked about is he says, you heard that, that you are the people who heard and saw the Lord that day. You heard that voice. Now as we've been reading through these books, what happened is, is that God, um, all those people died in the wilderness who were there that day. And one of the things that is a continual threat to Israel's identity, and I think it's a continual threat to our identities as those uh, shaped by Jesus Christ, is, is amnesia, is you forget what God has done for you. And in forgetting, you become unhinged and you begin to go off to other gods and other places to begin to seek and find that identity. And so one of the things, the ways this is handled throughout the Hebrew scriptures is you are those people. You are the people who have been rescued from slavery. You are the people who have been um, brought into the promised land. You are the people who have heard and seen these things through utterances, through what Jamie did this morning when she read it, they begin to become the people who have participated in these things through time. And you'll hear it over and over again. They're, they're replaying the same themes. There's even a thing um, at the end of the book uh, with Abraham, which I'd love, we'll probably preach on when we get there, where it says, when you come into the temple, say that my father was a wandering um, villager. Um, that And they're talking about Abraham, is that everybody has to go back even to that point in history to say that that's my father, that that's where I came from. And they're sort of grafted in in that way. And so Moses here reminds them of that. There's a, there's a portion in here too that Jamie read first, where it says um, that, that Yahweh himself was angry with me so I'm not going to go into the land. And Moses himself holds him, uh, himself out as sort of an object lesson for the people. I am the last of the generation that's dead. I'm not going, but you are. There's this way in sort of he's pushing the promise out to them by saying he's the end of that. And he stands sort of as then the pinnacle warning of sort of there is life before you and there is death before you choose. Moses stands as the representative of of what it means to have death before you this day. That there are other people who didn't make it. But what this scripture talks about is sort of that attraction to images. Now, what Kara read for us during the uh, worship set was this golden calf image, in which um, it contains one of my favorite lines in the Old Testament, where as for that fellow Moses, um, I just think he he was – you know, pastors maybe could learn something from that. Is we think we're important and great for this. The person who brought them out of Egypt and brought from the land, and they get to a mountain. And it, as for that mellow fellow Moses, we don't know. Like, we're just that fellow. Um, we're not even Moses, actually. As for that guy, I can't remember his name. Is maybe most pastors. Um, as for that fellow Moses, he's gone up on the mountain. And what I think is, I and I don't know how many of you grew up with this differently than I did. But what seems to be going on in in, in sort of the golden calf scene. I believe this is from the classic The Ten Commandments. Um, does it does that sound right? You've seen it, Hampton? Not from your college days, but from the classic The Ten Commandments. Um, you guys are the, no, you weren't a longhorn. You were an Aggie. Uh, sorry, now no, that's a sin. Um, uh, the uh, What happens is, is they actually fashion the golden calf after Yahweh. So oftentimes when we think of the scene as idolatry, we think of them making another god. But if you read it, particularly Aaron's lines about it, is he said, here is the one who brought you out of Egypt. That their idolatry isn't just uh, making another god, they're trying to make this god take the form of what would appease them. They're trying to bring this god close and near in a way that they, and what's, I think, Shocking about it, and it was read in, what Kara read for us, is they give offer they give up their gold. They, they offer to make this God of what they have, which is one of the insane parts about idolatry. Martin Luther, uh, when he talked about idolatry, he used to say, you know, uh, the heart, uh, the Calvin, the quote on the back of the bulletin, which we'll get to, is, um, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols, one of the things Luther used to say about idolatry was that um, any idol worth its salt eventually demands human sacrifice. That at some point, your idols aren't just the little things, but they'll actually ask for sacrifices of you. And so we see that with the golden calf. As even this God, I mean, they just made this thing, and yet they're willing to offer sacrifices to it. And so it is, there's this dual part with idolatry here. There's this, what Calvin's talking about is man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. And then there's the nation in which sometimes we ask God to become an idol for us. If you remember from the book of Numbers, they, they hold up a bronze snake and um, that heals them and they save it. But later in the Bible, they people begin to worship that even as a, as a symbol of God and they end up destroying that. That our God is against images and idols is something that runs deep throughout this. And the people seem to be warned against that. It's, it's, it's them this amnesia of forgetting that runs one of the challenges. And even by the way it's situated here, it seems like idolatry is going to be one of the perpetual challenges for the people of Israel. That as they go into the land, as they encounter other people with gods nearer to them and closer to them, they begin to have idolatrous temptations before them to worship those things as well. And it's not hard to see that for ourselves as well. We seem to be drawn into our own idolatrous patterns. We seem to go after what Calvin is warning us about here, as we make and manufacture our own idols at a consistent rate. And yet Yahweh, the one God here, appears to them with a dark cloud and with denseness, it says in the translation I have, that this voice that comes to them really has no shape or form. It was, it was hard not to find a cheesy picture of this. This is, is what it is. Um, but it's hard to imagine what it means that this is a thing that's with fire and with voice and without form. That God even makes it hard in the way that he approaches people to be captured into a place. And so these temptations that the people are warned against staying away from is that you shouldn't look for anything in the earth. The the winged bird, a sculpture in the form of a fem- male or female, any animal that's on the earth, um, these, uh, a fish, that these things shouldn't be an idol to you, is to say that which is near to you, you can't make an idol because God is distant from you. Okay, well let's worship the sun, the moon, and the stars and the entire army in heavens instead. And what the, the, uh, Moses is warning the people against is that you can't worship that which is far from you because God is near to you. And so he's outlawing the ability to make an idol of that which is far because God is near and to make an idol out of that which is near because God can't be contained within those forms. And this... Uh, I got a call from Ruth this week who's in, uh, still in the recovery facility in Carbondale, but uh, I was talking to her about how we even have a show called American Idol in this country. Um, uh, uh, we all vote for it, which is makes it an odd idol at that, but um, that there's these things that are near to us that we would love to make idols out of. And there are things that are far from us that we are drawn to making idols of. And what God says is neither one of those are there for you because God is both near to you and unable to be captured in your form. And what happens to us in idolatry, and I think what happens to the Israelites in idolatry too, is that they're drawn into trying to secure a better future for themselves through something else. I think one of the, uh, if you think about the three things that we talk about the faith, faith, hope, and love, um, all get messed up in idolatry. But I think one of the ones that happens often is hope. Is that perhaps we will have a more secure future with this God instead of that God. How can we secure a place for us in the world? How can we do this? Is, Is that hope sort of gets messed up in there. And so as our hearts become these sort of idle factories, we begin to look for better futures and better hopes. And and this is where Jesus is great as he says, uh, you can't serve both mammon and God um, because one of them loses. And isn't that the truth of it all is that when we try to make futures that are both um, my retirement account and God, it quickly becomes apparent that one wins out. And particularly when one tanks like it has lately with the stock market. It definitely is clear that one wins out. Um, but that we begin to try and secure hope in all sorts of different ways. And the church itself isn't immune to this. We create our own idols to try and secure our own places in the world. Perhaps there's a better future for us if we're this kind of church or that kind of church. Um, I always... There was a week ago where I was trying to use contemporary church things, and I couldn't do it because it just felt too bad. And I'm not going to do it today, either, um, because it doesn't do you any good to talk bad about those things. Um, but you could pick your own things is that even maybe you felt like maybe our church would be better as X church or this church or that kind of church. I know some of you think that it would be better if we were a King James-only church. Sorry, Hampton. That is not Hampton at all. Um, that we create our own idolatries, though, in that way. We try to manufacture them so that we as a church can secure our own future as a people, that we can become something else. And that's the challenge of sort of these teachings about idolatry is they tend to call us to rest only in God, to see ourselves as God's only possession, God's special possession is what the Torah is about. And what it says is that God took you out of the iron furnace of Israel to be a people for him, his domain, this very day. That God has rescued you out of, and I love that, that, that they use the image of a fiery furnace. God has taken you out of the fiery furnace trying to make you into something, to make you his own. God is a consuming fire. And yet, It says that God also is merciful in the same passage towards the end when we get there. That God is trying to make a people in the world. And we talked about this at the start, about how Jesus, through his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, is trying to make a people in the world the same way that Moses is. It's hard with idolatry because we always want to reduce it to individuality. But the fact is that idolatry is something that takes up a people. It was a, a psychologist, Carl, Carl Jung, who said uh, that ideas, uh, people don't have ideas, ideas have people. That people get captured up in ideas. One of the ways that, that uh, th- where I learned that from is he talks about Nazism, is that Nazism isn't people all having the same idea. It's an idea having all the same people. And that's how idolatry begins to work in that way that this idea take resonance among us. And that's how images and idols work, I think. It's, it's, it's hard because we live in such an image-based society that, that you know, we're blinded to this. Uh, I told this story a long time ago. But, you know, you don't see often what's right here. Like you, you look out and you see other things. And uh, I think a uh, pastor was telling me about this that they took a woman who their church was relo- relocating people from Haiti to the United States, and she said, when people come over there, they take her to the Mall of America. Um, just, just think about that in idolatry for a moment. Um, but they taken her to the Mall of America, and she said, when people come to Haiti, they say, oh, there's so much voodoo. There's so much idolatry. There's so much syncretism. And she said, you know, this, this is voodoo. This is that thing. And it's like we, you know, we look out and we see it in other people. But what's near to us, we're blinded to. This is voodoo. This is idolatry. And so we look over it in our own culture. And what happens in that is that the people are driven into exile. And one of the things that we've been slowly going through the Torah uh, has become apparent to me is most of the time God's judgment is you getting what you want. So the people chased after idols, and Moses says to the people, for Yahweh will disperse you among people. Fewer number of you will remain among the nations where Yahweh drives you, and then you will serve God made by hand, human hands of wood and stone, which cannot see, cannot listen, cannot eat, and cannot smell. You want to make an idol? You want to make an idol even of God? God will drive you to the places where that fits. God will drive you to the places where you can have your gods that cannot smell, that cannot eat, that cannot listen. It's, it's as if, it, and this has come up before, is that like it's you, you're getting what you want. God serves you back what it is that you want. It's the people earlier in uh, Numbers and in this passage, that in earlier in Deuteronomy, were talking about how it's about our children. That's why we don't want to go into the land. What God says, okay, your children will get the land and you will not. That you get more or less what you're looking for in these ways. It's them that will inherit it now. But God doesn't leave the people there. But you then will seek God, and He will find. Uh, but you will seek Lord, the Lord your God, from there, and you will find when you inquire of Him with your entire heart and with your entire being. When you're under pressure, all these things will befall you in a later time but you will turn back to the Lord your God and listen to his voice because the Lord your God is compassionate. He won't let go of you. He won't devastate you. He won't put you out of mind with the pact with because of the pact with your ancestors, which he swore to them, that God doesn't break his promises, that we don't go so far that we can't come back that somehow there's a way in which God is still faithful to us in which we are not faithful. It's been one of the challenges for me when people come to me and say, I'd like to get re-baptized, but I've been baptized before, particularly as an adult. And I, and I ask them why, and they often say, because I wandered away and now I'm back. And I, I, w- I want to remind them that because you were unfaithful, it doesn't mean that God was unfaithful to you. That God is the one continuing to hold out his promises. That God is the one who has come and and you've sought him again, but God didn't change. And you haven't changed to God either. But that God is the one who is faithful to us. That God is the one who sort of brings us back from these paths. For the Lord your God is a merciful God at the bottom. He will not abandon you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors by the oath which he swore and so this passage ends with, with some questions like the previous one did. Has a people ever heard God's voice speaking from the middle of the fire? Okay, on the Next slide. Um, yes. Uh, as, asks, ask now about the former days long before your time from the day God created him and beams on the earth. Ask from one end of heavens to the other. Has anything this great ever happened or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any other God tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by signs and wonders, by war and a mighty hand and an outstretched hand, or or by great and awesome deeds like the things your Lord God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? No, that hasn't been heard of before. No, people haven't heard from the fire before and lived. And no, nobody's been birthed out of another nation to become a great nation. Nobody's been rescued in that way. That God reminds them of what it's like to be with this God and to have him near as He's rescued them from the fiery furnace. And that God will restore them out of exile when they turn and seek again. David, last week, uh, brought up uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, and one of the things that w- he challenged me about was how do we, we know now how not to worship idols. How do we heal ourselves from that? And this is a passage from the silver chair that I want to read from you, but you, you can think through it. I'll maybe say a few words at the end. But it's about um, living water and where we go to get our drink. Do we get our drink from from the worship of nation, from the Mall of America, from the idols that surround us, or do we get our nourishment from God? If you are thirsty, you may drink. They're the first words she had heard since Scrub had spoken to her on the edge of the cliff. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, if you are thirsty, come and drink. And of course, she remembered what Scrub had said about animals talking in the other worlds and realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen its lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. "'Are you not thirsty?' said the lion." I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this by only a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at his motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now, without noticing it, she had become a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms said the lion. It didn't say it as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one has e- who had ever seen his face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do, but she f- went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up the water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. What is it... To have a God who is a fire outside the camp, motionless, without form, that is terrifying all at once, but comforting at the same time. Can I look for another stream? The heart is a perpetual maker of idols, but there is no other stream. And so we come forward to this God, renewed by his faith, and given water that plenishes in a way and gives us life so that we can continue forward. Let us pray. God, we are a people who love to chase, who love to look, who love to worship. It's in your book, The Confessions, that says our hearts are restless until they rest in you. God, this morning we call for you to be in this place, to give us a drink of the living water so that we will worship you, that we will seek you, that we will turn back to you. And we will find that you are the compassionate God who doesn't let go, who doesn't devastate, and keeps his promises. So we ask all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.